Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. The Branch Davidians, The Anthill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It was the middle of the night on July 2nd, 1937 and the waves of the South Pacific were calm. The crew of the U.S. Coast Guard ship anchored off a tiny island called Howland, a good sign. They were waiting for a single airplane to appear on the horizon. The ship was stationed to provide visual and radio guidance for the pilot, one of the most famous aviators in the world, Amelia Earhart. Aboard the ship, Broadcast operator Leo Bellarts hunched over his radio set, waiting for a transmission from Amelia. Around 2.45 a.m., her voice broke through the static. The signal was faint. Bellarts radioed back, but she didn't respond. The next time her voice echoed over the radio, it was three and a half hours later. The transmission was stronger, but Amelia sounded nervous. She said she was 200 miles out, and she still couldn't hear the ship's transmissions. Without a signal from the ship, she had no way to confirm her position or theirs, which meant Amelia was flying blind. By 6.45 a.m., her plane still hadn't appeared. She'd been airborne for over 19 hours, and by all calculations, her plane was about to run out of fuel. Now, every Navy and Coast Guard officer in the Pacific was asking the same question. Where was Amelia Earhart? Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. Today, we're investigating the disappearance of Amelia Earhart, one of the most famous missing person cases in history. And to this day, there are still many open-ended questions. But today, we'll examine how far modern forensic technology has taken us toward finding answers, and we'll ask whether we can finally lay to rest the mystery surrounding Amelia's legendary life and career. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Take something iconic like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Amelia Earhart's final flight is one of the biggest mysteries in aviation. However, before she disappeared while flying over the Pacific, Amelia's life began about as far from the ocean and airplanes as one can get. She was born in Kansas on July 24, 1897, amid open prairie and crop fields, and into wealth. Her father, Edwin, was a lawyer for the railroad, and her mother was the daughter of a prominent judge. As she grew older, Amelia spent more and more time with her grandmother, who was a stickler for etiquette. Amelia was expected to behave like a lady at all times. Even though often that felt impossible, she loved the outdoors, playing sports, and having grand imaginary adventures with her friends. She often came home covered in dirt and bruises, but always wearing a huge smile. While her grandmother tried to force her into a box, her father, Edwin, supported her passions and interests. He gave Amelia a rifle and encouraged her outdoor expeditions. He pushed her to explore the world without fear. Amelia once said, I wasn't brave. I just didn't have time to be scared. This philosophy served her well for the rest of her formative years, especially when her home life took a dark turn. Around 1910, Edwin became an alcoholic, which affected his work. He lost his railroad job in Kansas and had difficulty finding another, which meant money became tight. Amelia's father's hunt for a job tore her away from her roots as she followed him across the Midwest looking for work. She bounced between schools in Des Moines, St. Paul, and Chicago, learning to adapt quickly to new surroundings and new people. But the constant upheaval came at a cost. She lost the fearless, carefree, adventurous spirit she once had as a child, and she started to bury her feelings deep inside herself. When her grandmother died in 1911, 14-year-old Amelia showed little emotion, though her mother later said she was absolutely devastated. Even when her parents separated for several years, Amelia seemed unfazed. But her pain manifested in other ways. She no longer showed an interest in sports or nature. For most of her teenage years, she isolated herself in the library. She became a loner. As a result, the description under her photograph in her high school yearbook simply read, quote, the girl in brown who walks alone. But while she may have kept to herself in school, Amelia was a brilliant student. 
An avid reader, she devoured her study books and excelled in math. She could do figures in her head and would get frustrated when teachers would make her write out the answers and show her work. In 1916, the summer after Amelia graduated high school, her parents reunited and the Earharts returned to Kansas. It seemed the Earharts were finally returning to some semblance of stability. But for Amelia, the damage had been done. Edwin's drinking, the constant moving, and social isolation reshaped her worldview. She became fiercely independent, choosing to rely only on herself and her intuition. A few months after her graduation and the return to Kansas, 19-year-old Amelia came into a great deal of money. Her grandmother left a significant inheritance, worth the equivalent of nearly $9 million in 2022. Amelia's mother gave her a portion of the funds to attend the Ogon School, an all-female preparatory school in Pennsylvania, considered one of the best in the country. It was Amelia's first step toward college at a time when few women entered the world of higher education. Amelia was ecstatic about learning. The curriculum was jam-packed with activities and classes. For the first time in years, Amelia threw herself into social events, outdoor expeditions, and new adventures. Amelia also began to think critically about her future. While the school provided an exceptional education, the administrators pushed for students to get married. They considered marriage to be, quote, the ideal vocation for women. It seemed the school wasn't as superior as it claimed to be. Amelia disagreed with their philosophy, as evidenced by the career paths she considered. She studied examples of female police commissioners, ship captains, and movie producers. Amelia's ambitions were leading her toward an unconventional life. And not even a world war could stop her. After the U.S. joined World War I in 1917, Amelia became a volunteer nurse's aide. She dropped out of school and moved with her sister to Toronto, where a huge influx of wounded Canadian soldiers were coming back from Europe. For nearly a year, Amelia cleaned beds, delivered meals, and did what she could to brighten the injured soldiers' lives. The isolated schoolgirl of her high school years was gone. Amelia blossomed into a friendly, outgoing young woman. When she wasn't working at the hospital, Amelia rode horses and explored the city. One day, she rode along a large open field near the Canadian Flying School. There were dozens of planes taking off and landing along a snowy airstrip. Amelia was immediately enthralled by the big, lumbering aircraft. After that, she went to the airfield almost daily to watch the planes take off. She tried to get close enough that the propellers would blow snow all over her. She even got to know some of the pilots and listened to their stories of aerial battles and dangerous storms. The tales reawakened Amelia's adventurous spirit from childhood. She tried to return to her education and even enrolled in Columbus University's medical program. But she quickly realized medicine wasn't for her. She knew she had to fly one day to explore. In 1920, Amelia carried her passion for airplanes all the way to California. New airfields were being built almost monthly on the coast, and air shows grew in popularity. 
Amelia even signed up for flight lessons, though they were prohibitively expensive. While Amelia might have grown up with money, after years of hardship, her family's wealth had dwindled. Amelia kept at it anyway and took a job as a mail clerk to pay for ongoing lessons. Three years later, in the spring of 1923, Amelia received her pilot's license from the International Aeronautical Federation. She was just the 16th woman in the world to receive one. Amelia had finally chosen a path for her future. It would lead to fame, fortune, and of course, the greatest aviation mystery of all time. Coming up, Amelia Earhart takes a daring risk and becomes a celebrity. Listeners, I have a very special announcement. Parcast is releasing its first book on July 12th, and you can help us celebrate. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. This book was written for the fans, so to commemorate its launch, Parcast will be throwing some exclusive in-person and online events featuring popular true crime hosts such as Ashley Flowers from Crime Junkie, Christine and M from And That's Why We Drink, and more. Just visit parcast.com slash cults for event dates, locations, and how to sign up. See your favorite true crime authors and podcasters discuss the cults book and have a chance to participate in live Q&As. These events have limited space, so don't miss out. RSVP today. None of this would be possible without your support, so we truly hope you'll join us. Pre-order your copy of Cults and sign up for upcoming events at parcast.com slash cults. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Money Maker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1923, Amelia Earhart received her pilot's license. In doing so, the 25-year-old cemented a spot on an incredibly short list of female aviators. Unfortunately for her, a career as a pilot wasn't really an option. There were few paid positions. Planes were mostly used for mail or military operations. Flying was primarily considered a niche hobby for the elite. But then in 1927, Charles Lindbergh made aviation Famous. That spring, Lindbergh became the first solo pilot to fly nonstop across the Atlantic. After the endeavor, he became a global celebrity, writing a best-selling book and making millions. A few months later, Amelia was at an air show in Boston. One of the pilots there was Tia Rasha, a well-known female aviator or aviatrix. Amelia watched Rasha take off and perform loops, rolls, and daring aerial maneuvers until the airplane's engine abruptly shut off. Rasha tried to restart the motor, but it didn't work. She was forced to glide back to Earth and make an emergency landing. Luckily, she walked away with only minor injuries. 
But onlookers were irritated. They came to see a performance, not a failed flight. Murmurs ran through the crowd complaining about how this was an example of why women shouldn't fly. Amelia heard the whispers and became enraged. She made her way to one of the nearby hangars and showed her pilot's license. Then, brave as ever, she politely borrowed one of the airport's small planes. In a stunning display, Amelia took off, rolled and looped the plane, and landed perfectly. The next day, the Boston Globe wrote that, quote, women are quite as capable pilots as men and quite as daring. Unfortunately, the newspaper's claim didn't sway the general public. It was an uphill battle. Half a dozen women had tried to follow in Lindbergh's footsteps to become the first woman to perform a nonstop solo flight across the Atlantic. Four of them crashed, and the rest had to turn back due to inclement weather. For some, this proved women were inferior pilots. But others, including Amelia, were determined to prove them wrong. After her stunt in Boston, she was approached by a wealthy New York socialite named Amy Phipps Guest. Guest loved aviation, but was too old to fly herself. She noticed the number of women, like the German stunt pilot Tia Rasha, announcing their own bids to fly it across the Atlantic. But she wanted an American woman to be the first, and Amelia fit the bill perfectly. While she wouldn't be flying solo, Amelia never turned down an opportunity for adventure, especially not if her costs would be covered. The plane, the equipment, and the necessary permits were all prepared for her by guest. On June 13, 1928, Amelia and her co-pilots flew from Newfoundland to Wales. The flight took nearly 21 hours, but it made Amelia famous practically overnight. U.S. President Calvin Coolidge sent her a personal congratulations, and Amelia had dinner with Winston Churchill. Henry Ford even gave her an exclusive limousine. But Amelia's transatlantic flight brought her more than fame and fortune. It also brought love into her life. A young PR whiz named George Putnam was put in charge of highlighting Amelia's flight for the press. This meant he and Amelia spent plenty of time together. And George thought Amelia was just the bee's knees. Amelia came to realize that George's supportive nature and affection had to do with more than just his job. He would do anything for her. For the first time in years, 33-year-old Amelia had someone she could trust wholeheartedly. It didn't take long for their love to blossom, and they married in February 1931. After her Atlantic success, Amelia continued setting records in the United States. She flew solo cross-country, from Los Angeles to Hawaii, and from California to Mexico and back. Each time, she was either the fastest, first, or only pilot to make these journeys. Then, in 1932, Amelia repeated her transatlantic flight. This time, she was alone which made her only the second pilot ever to accomplish the feat. In the world of aviation, Charles Lindbergh now shared his spotlight. For the next several years, Amelia lived in the limelight. Like Lindbergh, Amelia wrote a book about her Atlantic flight and toured the country to promote sales. And the timing couldn't have been better. 
America was in the midst of the Great Depression, and the public saw her as a beacon of hope in an otherwise dark time. She spoke in front of upwards of 80,000 people, sometimes giving multiple lectures in a single day. She even did a stint at Purdue University where she taught a class on aviation. Amelia loved showing future generations of young women that they could achieve anything. She wore long pants and short hair when neither style was common for women. She encouraged girls to push boundaries, saying, quote, There are a great many boys who would be better off making pies, and a great many girls who would be better off as mechanics. After Purdue, Amelia's reputation, influence, and wealth continued to grow. By the mid-1930s, there were very few people in the U.S. who didn't know her name. But for Amelia, there was one big problem with a life of fame and fortune. It was all on the ground. Amelia was on top of the world, but wanted to be in the air. So she set her sights on the longest flight she could imagine. A trip around the entire planet. A pilot named Wiley Post had circumnavigated the globe by air in 1933, but he'd done it in short distances in the Northern Hemisphere. Amelia dreamed of flying around the Earth at the equator, a journey that would encompass about 29,000 miles. Nobody had ever considered such an undertaking. Amelia knew she would need a special aircraft to pull it off. She'd also need fuel stations and airfields at regular intervals, but not many existed. This was one of the primary reasons Amelia was able to set so many records. Air travel was still young. Most aviation feats were novel achievements. Even the science of flying was still not fully understood. Aeronautics was a brand new field of study. Aircraft technology was still rough around the edges, from the planes themselves to refueling and maintenance systems. The most difficult stretch of Amelia's intended journey was across the Pacific Ocean. Airplanes in the 1930s couldn't carry enough fuel to cross the expanse in a single flight, which meant Amelia would need to refuel in the middle of the ocean. Initially, she wrote to the U.S. Navy about possibly refueling in midair, but it was decided that it would be too difficult and dangerous. Amelia had to find another option. The Pacific Ocean was 63.8 million square miles. There was simply no way she could make the world flight without a stop somewhere between Southeast Asia and Hawaii. After some research with her husband, George, Amelia homed in on a potential solution. Pacific Atolls. The South Pacific was filled with thousands of tiny coral and volcanic islands called atolls. Plenty of them were large enough to land an aircraft. One in particular, Howland Island, was at a perfect distance for a fuel stop between Papua New Guinea and Hawaii. But Howland Island was only two miles long and half a mile wide. It was in the middle of millions of miles of open ocean amidst hundreds of similar islands. It wasn't just difficult to spot from the air. It was like finding a needle in a haystack in a million fields of haystacks. Not only that, few islands in the South Pacific were inhabited, and almost none had any infrastructure. Howland Island was no exception. Still, Howland was a crucial stop. So she petitioned the U.S. government to build a runway on the island just for her flight. 
Originally, the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard refused since there was no military use for the island. But Amelia was undeterred. The equator flight would be her opus, and she was determined to see it through. She had money and connections, and one particularly powerful friend in the White House, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. After some political machinations and a few telegrams begging for help, Amelia convinced the Roosevelts to back her plan. With the flick of President Roosevelt's pen, the U.S. government paid for Amelia's airstrip on Howland. Her husband George, a master of public relations, played a crucial role as well. He obtained the flight permits for every country Amelia would be flying over and the gasoline that needed to be there when she landed. She had the infrastructure. Now all she needed was the plane. At the time, there were only a few types of aircraft that could survive a global flight, and they were expensive. Amelia couldn't cover the cost herself. But Purdue University could help. Purdue started the Amelia Earhart Fund for Aeronautical Research with the goal of being able to help buy Amelia her own, quote, flying laboratory. They managed to quickly land contributions from businessmen David Ross, J.K. Lilly Sr., and Vincent Bendix, and additional funds from Goodrich, Goodyear, and Western Electric. By April 1936, Amelia was able to purchase a brand new Lockheed Electra. At the time, the Electra was a cutting-edge aircraft. Lockheed only built 15 of them. It was made of shiny steel and aluminum with a big cockpit and nose cone. Apart from the broad wings and the two huge engines, it almost looked like a metal dolphin. Amelia's Electra was heavily modified for her to circumnavigate the globe. Engineers added four additional fuel tanks, extra batteries, and a dedicated third seat for a navigator. All told, her Electra carried over 800 pounds of extra weight, including special navigation and radio equipment. Some of this gear was so complex that Amelia required extra training just to operate it. The radios were more powerful than any she'd ever seen in a plane before, and required extra-long antennas above and below the fuselage. There was also a special navigation component that she'd never used before, a radio direction finder, or DF. This was a ring-shaped antenna mounted just above the cockpit that allowed her to align the plane with the direction of radio signals. Essentially, the DF was like a radio wave hound dog, sniffing out the strongest scent on any given frequency. If the signal was coming from the Northeast, for example, the DF would direct her to the precise transmission location. This made it easier and safer to fly long distances over an empty ocean. If there was a strong transmitter out there, like on a Navy ship or an island airstrip, Amelia could find it. But with her schedule packed for preparations, Amelia repeatedly put off the radio training sessions. By the time she took off, she'd spent less than an hour learning how the DF and other radio equipment worked. The new Electra arrived on July 24, 1936, which happened to be Amelia's 39th birthday. After she flew the sleek aircraft for the first time, she said, quote, I could write poetry about that ship. With the plane and the plan in place, it seemed everything was ready for the round-the-world flight. There was just one last crucial addition, 
Amelia still needed a navigator. It was physically impossible for her or anyone to make the journey alone. A global flight was nearly a dozen times longer than her transatlantic journey. The Pacific crossing alone was twice as far, so Amelia needed someone who could fly while she rested. There were also sections of the globe that required celestial navigation. Amelia was a good pilot, but flying by the stars was a unique skill set. One of the best celestial navigators alive was a Pan American Airways pilot named Fred Noonan. Amelia approached Noonan with the plan herself. Noonan didn't even hesitate. The opportunity to fly around the world with the most famous aviatrix in the world was too good to pass up. He immediately joined her in Oakland, California, the starting point for the global flight. Everything was ready for Amelia to fly around the world. Nobody suspected it would be the last flight she'd ever make. Coming up, Amelia Earhart flies into oblivion. Now back to the story. Amelia Earhart took off from Oakland, California on May 21, 1937. She headed to Miami, the first stop on her round-the-world flight. After a week of preparation for the long haul across the globe, she left Miami on June 1, 1937. The first weeks of the flight were rather uneventful, even easy. Amelia and her navigator Fred Noonan flew across the U.S. to Brazil, then across the Atlantic to Senegal. From there, they traversed Africa and the Middle East with little fanfare. But in India, they hit their first significant obstacle. Monsoon rains. The pounding storms were so powerful, they peeled paint off the Electra. They were forced to slow down for several days as they flew towards Singapore. With the weather wreaking havoc on their instruments, they relied on Noonan's celestial navigation skills. He had two tools with him, a normal ship sextant and a special aeronautical bubble octant. Both of these devices were deceptively complex. They were handheld metal contraptions that measured stars from the horizon. But any error in the measurements could put a ship or airplane far off course in a matter of hours. Luckily, Noonan was one of the world's best navigators. He managed to keep the Electra on a beeline toward the Pacific, even through the storms. By June 29th, they were on the western edge of the Pacific, flying from Australia to Papua New Guinea. Amelia hoped to be back in Oakland within a few days. After all, she was utterly exhausted. They'd covered 22,000 miles, with only 7,000 more to go. Amelia took off from Papua New Guinea at 10 a.m. on July 2, 1937. She and Noonan aimed for Howland Island. After so much success, neither of them doubted they'd reach the tiny Pacific Atoll without trouble. But they were wrong. Just after midnight on July 2nd, the Coast Guard cutter Itasca fired up its deck spotlights and pointed them into the sky. The ship was waiting just off Howland Island to provide navigational assistance to Amelia. Her flight time from Papua New Guinea was around 18 hours, depending on the winds, so the Coast Guard expected her to arrive between 4 a.m. and 8 a.m. on the 2nd. 
Thanks to crossing the international date line, Amelia would land at Howland on the same day she took off. As the hours ticked by, radio man Leo Bellarts listened on frequency 3105 for Amelia's call sign. In this era, and with ham radio today, all operators used a multi-letter identifier when they transmit. A call sign is like a special radio name, and Amelia's was K-H-A-Q-Q. Around 2.45 a.m., a faint transmission came in on 3105, talking about the overcast weather. Bellarts heard Amelia's call sign, but she quickly faded into static. For the next two hours, Bellarts thought he heard a few indistinct calls from her, but he couldn't make out what she said. This was unusual because Amelia should have been in consistent radio contact by now. Finally, a clear signal came through, and it was the first sign of trouble. At 6.14 a.m., Amelia reported that she was 200 miles away from Howland. Then she started whistling into her microphone and asked the Coast Guard to take a navigational bearing on her radio signal. Remember, this was long before GPS. Amelia had to rely on the Direction Finder, or DF, to guide her. By whistling, she was providing a strong, consistent signal to the DF. But to the Coast Guard, this request was strange. She wanted directions from their location to hers, which was akin to calling someone and saying, Hey, where am I? If anything, Amelia should have been taking a bearing with her DF to find them. Not only that, the Coast Guard's DF couldn't operate on Amelia's frequency, and she knew that. She was asking them to do the impossible. When Bellarts radioed back, Amelia seemed to ignore his call. She went silent for another 30 minutes. Bellarts was concerned. Based on her requests, it seemed Amelia didn't know where she was. But at 6.45 a.m., she was back on the radio and said she was now 100 miles out. She repeated her request for the ship to use their DF to help her navigate. Once more, Bellarts radioed back, and again, Amelia ignored him. She had yet to acknowledge receipt of any of his previous transmissions. By 7.35 a.m., Bellarts was frustrated. He felt Amelia was acting irrationally. Before she'd left Papua New Guinea, they had worked out very specific procedures and times for their radio calls. Now it seemed like Amelia was throwing their plan out the window. And she still wasn't responding to messages. The ship blasted out radio signals on every frequency they could, with both voice transmissions and Morse code. They also fired its boilers to produce thick black soot. It pumped a huge column of smoke into the sky that could be seen for miles. It was a visual beacon for Amelia to follow. But the smoke only helped if Amelia was close enough to see it, which is why her next radio transmission sent a chill down Bellart's spine. At 7.42 a.m., Amelia called again. She said, quote, We must be on you, but cannot see you. Gas is running low. We are flying at an altitude of 1,000 feet. This signal was so strong, it practically blew out Bellart's headphones. It was like Earhart was right above them. 
Bellarts even went outside, expecting to hear the Electra buzzing overhead. But there was no sign of the plane or even sounds of an engine. It was clear the Electra wasn't where it was supposed to be, despite Amelia's projections. Bellarts had a sickening realization. Something was seriously wrong with the plane's radio. No matter what they did, Amelia wouldn't be able to hear them. The huge tower of billowing smoke was their only hope, but Amelia's messages never mentioned seeing it. This likely meant she was much farther away from Howland than she believed. At 8.45 a.m., nearly two hours after her anticipated arrival, Amelia sent another transmission. Bellarts could hear the fear in her voice. She spoke into the receiver, quote, We are on line 157-337. We will repeat message. We are running on line north-south. These numbers were compass headings, 157 degrees and 337 degrees, that were opposite each other. They were the endpoints of a line that Amelia was flying back and forth to find the island. This made sense because on the charts, Howland was directly on that line. As long as she stayed on course, she'd eventually fly over the island if she didn't run out of gas first. By the Coast Guard's calculations, the Electra's fuel tanks were almost dry. The plane was likely just minutes from crashing. If Amelia and Noonan jumped from the plane in the ocean, officials would need to know their exact position to rescue them. The Pacific was too vast. And Amelia believed she was nearby, but there was still no sign of her. The only thing anyone knew for sure Amelia Earhart was lost and in trouble. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with the stunning conclusion to Amelia Earhart's disappearance. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth— You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Andrew Messer, edited by Mallory Cara and Connor Sampson, with fact-checking by Haley Milliken and research by Mickey Taylor. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at ParCast.com cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.